Let's bow together. Father, yes, we do uh, praise your name and thank you for your love and your kindness, your grace, your mercy that you've uh, poured out in sending your son Jesus for us. Thank you that we have the privilege of coming together and singing to you and uh, exalting your name and declaring your excellencies. Lord, I pray as we look into your word that we would uh, take it seriously, that uh, we would allow you to speak to us through your word by your spirit so that we would know exactly what you intended and that we would respond uh, in giving you the praise and the glory and trusting in you and relying on your son. So we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word and we pray you would bless it as it goes out. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been going through the book of Second Thessalonians, and now we uh, arrive close to uh, uh, Resurrection Sunday. And I wanted to uh, take a little diversion today, and we certainly will next week, Lord willing. I wanted to take a look at uh, the crucifixion of King Jesus for us. And so would you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27? And we're going to be looking at verses 27 to 50, and we're going to see that King Jesus bears our sin in his body on the cross. And if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, the the true story of what Christ did for us should never become old. It should be something that is on our hearts every day, not just during this uh, Easter time and resurrection time. We should be thinking about what Christ did for us. And so this week we'll look at his death on our behalf, and next week we will look at his resurrection unto life. Now, if you were with us uh, many years ago studying Matthew, uh, we saw that even before uh, Jesus was born, uh, before God took on human flesh, that the angel spoke to Joseph and told him that the son needed to take on human flesh. Uh, remember what the angel told Joseph back in Matthew one twenty one, speaking of Mary, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. It's this same Jesus who is the rightful king of the Jews in the line of David. It is God the Son who did take on human flesh. And you see, the purpose for the Lord taking on human flesh was not simply to be an example, although he was a perfect example. It was not simply that he would be worshipped as king, although he is the king of the Jews and the king of kings and lord of lords. His purpose in coming, as we will see and laid with in the book of Matthew, and we'll see today, was not to serve, or not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We see in Matthew 26, 28, he says, For this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He came to serve by shedding his blood to die for our sins. Now, the context of the book of Matthew, we see that King Jesus came to his own who were sitting in darkness. They were sitting in the shadow of death. That's sin. And with his teaching, he confronted their wrong thinking. He exposed their sin. He revealed himself as the Christ, the King, the Son of God, and the only Savior, and called upon them to repent and believe in him for salvation. But the Jews and their leaders rejected Jesus, and they delivered him up for crucifixion. And having been tried by the Jewish leaders and found guilty of claiming to be God, which by the way he is, through their jealousy they delivered him up to Pilate, uh, the Roman governor who tried his best politically to wash his hands of the situation. Finding no guilt in him, Pilate handed him over to Herod who found no guilt. And then Pilate, then being fully responsible, delivered up Jesus' fate uh, by the, to the people, being manipulated by the Jewish leaders who chose Barabbas, a murderer, over uh, releasing cry, the Christ, and called upon Jesus to be crucified. Pilate was a self-serving political coward who gave into the demands of the evil, wicked leaders and the people who were led by them, and vainly attempted to wash his hands of the guilt which he still bears. 
It is at this point we come to the crucifixion of King Jesus for us. For us. Again, turn to Matthew chapter 27. And our text begins in verse 27, but we're going to go back a little bit and read up to our text. It's a long narrative. It's a, it's a, just a, a narration of truth. It is historically true, and so it's not intended for us to break down every piece of it, but to get to the point of what God is trying to show us through what he did through his son Jesus. Verse 22, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. Now, by the way, these are the same people who were just a couple of days ago saying, Hosanna in the highest. They wanted Jesus when he was going to do what they wanted him to do. But when he wasn't going to do that, let him be crucified, you see. And he said, why? Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the multitude, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas for them, and but after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him up to be crucified. And here we have our passage. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort, cohort around him. The whole Roman cohort around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him, and they took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took his robe off, and they put his garments on him, and they led him away to crucify him. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simeon, who, Simon, who they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink mingled with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And they put above his head the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling insults or hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself. You are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we shall believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now. If he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers also who had been crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man's calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran up and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is uh, one of the most important passages we have in scripture as we see uh, the leading up to and the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The most important part of the death of Christ on our behalf. It's a true story being told. And so, again, we don't want to break it down so much that we don't see what God is intending to share through just relaying what happened. What happened this day. 
It's one of the most sobering yet wonderful portions of Scripture. It's a passage in which Jesus appears to be the victim, but actually he's the victorious king. He's the victorious king who dies for our sins, giving his life for us. For us. It's a passage that all of Matthew has been leading up to, and it's my prayer that as believers we would have a greater understanding of what Christ did for us on the cross, and we would respond with greater glory and honor and worship of the Lord who gave himself for us. And it's my prayer for those who don't know the Lord that they would gain insight into their own sinfulness and a need of a Savior, Jesus Christ, who thus died for their sins and ours. So then let's take a look at this sobering but wonderful passage. Notice, first of all, being led to Golgotha, Jesus, the king, is mocked by Gentile soldiers. Notice he's taken to the Praetorian, that's the Roman headquarters, and he is mocked and beaten in front of the whole Roman cohort. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered around the whole Roman cohort around him. Here we have Roman soldiers under Pilate's command taking Jesus into the praetorium. That's the Roman headquarters. And we see what happens. Uh, they, they gathered around the whole Roman cohort around him. Now, a cohort was about 500 to 600 men, and they gathered them all around. It's a bunch of Roman soldiers, and what did they do? Verse uh, 28, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Now, most likely this was an old Roman soldier's coat, reddish, uh, uh, and when well used, it would even look purplish, as we see in Mark's account. And don't forget, uh, Jesus had already been beaten by the Jewish leaders, he had been mocked uh, by Herod's soldiers already. Pilate had scourged him. This is a brutal and shameful whipping uh, with a leather whip with pieces of bone attached. And some people wouldn't even survive that at times. This was brutal in, its, in, its, in and of itself. And now we have the whole Roman cohort mocking him. And they're mocking him according to the official charge that he has. This is the king of the Jews. And so now having put on a crown of thorns on his head and given him a reed in his hand. Now, you think of a crown of thorns. I thought about this. You have, you know, thorns sometimes aren't that bad, but we have this thorn bush in, near our house. Man, it is sharp. You know what I'm saying? They're mocking him with a crown of thorns. How ironic. The creator of the universe. They're mocking him. Put a crown of thorns on him and they gave him a reed in his right hand, which is just a tall, a stalk of a tall plant. And notice what they do. And they kneeled down before him. This is, this is quite amazing when you think of who he really is and what they're actually doing, which is so evil. Before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him, and they took the reed and began to beat him in the head. Now we have God the Son, the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who took on human flesh the one in whom every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess as Lord. We have Gentile soldiers kneeling down before him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, spitting on him. That was a terrible insult, by the way. And they took the reed and began to beat him on the head. Now, why would uh, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords allow his fallen creation to do this to him? Well, you might uh, remember what Jesus had told his disciples previously when they were on their way to Jerusalem. Look back in chapter 20, Matthew 20, verse 18. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and he will deliver, and, and will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. This is God's predetermined plan that this would be allowed, this, this sinfulness would be allowed to go forth. God would take the, wicked, the most wicked evil and turn it for good. Indeed, Matthew chapter, not Matthew, but Isaiah chapter 50. Turn to the middle of your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah 50. 
We see this was prophesied back uh, in the days of Isaiah, 700 years before Christ came on the scene. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 5. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I, did, I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let him stand up to each, let him, let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. The Lord, uh, God the Son, totally trusted the Father. And this was prophesied that he would go through this wickedness. Tremendous God we have, uh, who did not revile in return, uh, when, who uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. 1 Peter chapter 2. Ultimately, that he would bear our sins in his body on the cross. You see, he trusted the Father in the midst of great evil to accomplish great good at the Father's will. And that's what God does through us, through our suffering, when we trust Christ. But we have to see it rightly and rely on our Savior. So they notice at this point they lead him away to crucify him. Back in our chapter 27, verse 31, Matthew 27, 31. And after they had mocked him, they took his robe off and put garments on him and led him away to crucify him. Now, crucifixion was a brutal form of, of execution that the Romans used, and it was not only uh, the public crucifixion that was part of it, the procession beforehand leading up to it was part of it also. And it was used as a deterrent uh, for people who might be tempted to do the same crimes. It was used as a deterrent. And historically speaking, this procession that they would have leading up to the crucifixion, they would take the longest route possible and uh, to the crucifixion site to maximize the visual deterrent that sim- so that people would not commit similar crimes. And in a historic sense, uh, we see that even when someone was crucified, they were taken by four Roman soldiers. They were walked through the streets of, of Jerusalem with a plaque with the charges around their neck, and they would bear the cross, the cross beam of the cross, which weighed about 100 pounds. And so evidently Jesus is being led in this shameful procession uh, to Golgotha. And then we see Simon is, of Cyrene is pressed into service. Look at verse 32. And as they were coming out, coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, who they pressed into service to bear his cross. Now, the term as they were coming out uh, probably doesn't refer to the Praetorian. Uh, probably speaks of coming out of the city, out of the actual city of Jerusalem. You see, the, where the place where Jesus was crucified was not in the city. It was outside the city. Very clearly in Numbers chapter 15:35 in the Mosaic Law, it required that executions be taken or brought about outside the camp or of the city. It would be a place of shame, actually. And indeed, the writer of Hebrews speaks of this. I'll read this, Hebrews 13:12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence, let us go outside Go, go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach, saying, hey, he was shamed. Let us endure shame also as the Savior leads. So we have him being led outside shamefully, shamefully. You see, in the writer of Hebrews, for those believers, he, they were on the verge of compromise because of unbelief, and, and they were being tempted to turn away, and thus they're being exhorted, bear the shame of Christ. It's what Christ did. He suffered outside the gate, a shameful death. So then the procession with Jesus carrying the, the cross beam with the Roman soldiers moved through the city and is now outside, leaving the city. And this is where, on the way to where Jesus would be crucified. 
And it's at this point, apparently, Jesus, having stayed up all night, having been beaten, scourged, almost to death, certainly having lost a lot of blood, is no longer able to physically carry that 100-pound crossbeam. And as they were coming out, verse 32, they found a man, Simon, named si- or Cyrene, of Cyrene, named Simon, and they pressed him into service to bear his cross. Now, I want to point out something interesting from Mark and Luke's account. That's interesting because in Mark chapter 15, Simon is described as the father of Alexander and Rufus. This is very interesting. Mark 15, and they pressed into service, verse 21, a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene. Notice and Mark says, the father of Alexander and Rufus. He adds that in to bear his cross. Now, this has caused some to speculate uh, that it is from this situation in which Simon was, induced, was, was introduced to Christ that he came to faith, most likely. And we see that's certainly possible. Look at uh, Luke chapter 23. Luke 23. You see, Simon was privy to all the things that were being said about Jesus and how Jesus reacted while he was on his way to his crucifixion. Some very interesting things are said and recorded in the book of Luke that Simon was privy to. Luke chapter 23, verse 26. And when they had led him away, they, let, they laid hold of one Simon of Cyrene, coming, this is Luke 23, 26, coming from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And there were following him a great multitude of people. So you've got Simon, and you've got, you've got Jesus, and then you've got Simon behind him, and you've got this great multitude of people following, okay? And women who were out mourning and, and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, now Simon's right between them, by the way, okay? Turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green tree, what will happen in the dry? He's talking about the judgment that was coming upon Jerusalem for their rejection of Christ. And he's saying it right to these professional mourners. These ladies most likely were just that, professional mourners, historically speaking. They had a ministry, quote-unquote, really, uh, to make a buck, but that's really what it was, uh, to weep and follow people to their execution. That was their little, their little gig, I guess. And Jesus reproves them, pointing out they're in great spiritual trouble because judgment is coming upon them. Now, that judgment came most likely in 70 A.D., as we see uh, Titus uh, uh, ultimately led by Satan, but God allowing it destroyed Jerusalem, and they were all dispersed. Many died. So Simon witnessed all this and most likely heard it clearly. You see, Jesus is God. He's in control, and even on the way to the cross, he's still admonishing those in sin to reckon with the reality of God's judgment. So we have King Jesus having been mocked by the soldiers, shamefully led out as a criminal with the charge. He is the king of the Jews around his neck, being led outside the gate to his crucifixion. Now notice Matthew shares in bullet points the events of the crucifixion and how they fulfill prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. Verse 33, back in chapter 27 of Matthew. And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they came, they gave him wine mingled with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. Now, the term Golgotha was an Aramaic word, which means skull, basically, place of the skull. It says it right here in our text. And this is the place where Jesus would be crucified. And it's where most likely the Romans did their crucifixion. And it's most likely that it was a little hill that looked like a skull when you looked at it. It's interesting, the Latin word calaveria comes from the Greek term cranium, which we get our word, the other word, English word, uh, calvary. Can you think of that? At cranium, right? (laughs) It's at calvary, right? It's the place of the skull. That's where it happened. That's where it happened. So he's at the place of the skull, and they gave him 
wine to drink mingled with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. Now, gall was a, a light narcotic, and even, even evidently more specifically, it was used, as Mark would say, it was like myrrh mixed with wine, Mark 15:23. And this was given to prisoners to dull their senses, to ease their pain during a crucifixion. But evidently, it was not there to, to it wasn't a nice thing that they were doing for Jesus. Contrary to what you think, they would give them this narcotic to lessen the pain, the pain, so that uh, those who were being uh, crucified, their, their, the crucifier's job would be much easier. You know, when someone is, is, is drugged out, the nails through their hands and feet don't hurt as much, you see. And so it made their job easier. Uh, they wouldn't fight as much. And so what does Jesus do? After tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. You see, we have God in human flesh unwilling to relieve his own pain. Instead of drinking gall, he would drink the full cup of God's wrath on our behalf. Jesus was fully aware and fully conscious, receiving the total consequences of our sin, as we will see, as he would die for us on the cross. What a gracious God. After tasting it, he would not and was unwilling to drink it. Now, this portion, too, was in fulfillment of Scripture. We see this in Psalm 69. Psalm 69, verse 21. I'll read this to you. Verse 20. Reproach has broken my heart. You think Jesus doesn't understand? He understands more than you think, by the way. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am sick. And I have looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. We see Christ fulfilled that. And notice, uh, also fulfilling prophecy, his garments were gambled for. Verse 35. And when, and when they had crucified him, when they had crucified him, um, uh, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots. Now, the statement, when they had crucified him, doesn't mean he had died yet. It means they had nailed him in and they had put him up on the cross. He hadn't died yet. Now, in terms of this crucifixion here, it says, and when they crucified him. Very simple statement. Now, the scripture does not give us a lot of details about crucifixion, unlike movies and multiple books written. And it's my belief God doesn't give us the details because we might get emotionally carried away rather than seeing what and understanding what we need to understand. And God shares that in the scriptures. It's not wrong to respond with emotion, but we can get emotionally caught up in all the stuff of it like those movies have rather than the reality of our sinfulness and our Savior dying for our sins. God wants us to focus not simply on the physical act, a horrifying, brutal act. He wants us to understand the purpose behind it that Jesus had to die for our sins. Now, some of you may not understand, but crucifixion was a brutal way to die. It would take sometimes people days to die. In Jesus' case, we know from Scripture that he was nailed to the cross. His hands and feet were pierced, just as prophesied. Uh, uh, Psalm 22, for dogs, verse 16, have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced for our transgressions. They crucified him. Now, crucifixion, as I've mentioned... Uh, was a brutal form of death, a shameful form of death. It was not allowed for Roman citizens to be crucified, but it was the preferred method of execution for those in the subjected empire. Uh, it's said to, to the, up to this point that over 30,000 Jews had been crucified. That's a lot of people. So Jesus is nailed to the cross. He hangs on a cross of wood, and, and, this, and this was a shameful, shameful place for Jews to be. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 21, 
God made it clear that this was a shameful place to be. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22. And if any man has committed sin worthy of death, he is to be put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall bury him on the same day, for he was hanged as a curse from God, so that you will not defile your land when the Lord your God gives you an inheritance. Jesus did nothing worthy of death. He was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, falsely accused. And yet he hung on a tree to bear our sins, to become a curse for us in our place. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by the things written in this book to perform them. Galatians 13, 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He bore our sin. He became a curse for us. The sin that brought about made us worthy of death. He died in our place. So in fulfillment of prophecy, he was in control, giving up his life. But also we see they cast lots. And I already shared this in, in verse 22 or chapter 22 of Psalms. They divide my garments and among, among them and they cook my clothing. They cast lots. And back in our passage, turn back to our passage, chapter 27, verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots. And you see, everything happens concerning in fulfillment of God's predetermined plan. Turn to John 19, John 19, verse 23. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part for each soldier and also a tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. They said, to their one, therefore, to one another, let us not tear it, but let us cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be, that the scripture may be fulfilled. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. The scriptures were fulfilled. So notice as we continue back in Matthew 27, verse 36, verse 36, and sitting down, and sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. Here you have the soldiers doing their job. They're keeping watch over him so that no one would come and take him down from the cross. They're keeping watch. They're guarding him. And they notice what they did. Verse 37. And they put up above his head the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now this charge was most likely put around his neck and when he was paraded around the city, and now they've put it above his head. And we know from John's gospel that the inscription, or inscription there was in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. John 19.20. And we know from the book of John that the chief priests and the Jews had a problem with this, but Pilate left it as it is. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. You see, God is sovereign. And although Pilate probably did this in a mocking fashion, God allowed the truth to be above his son when he was crucified. Because Jesus is the King of the Jews. And then fulfilling prophecy, notice he was crucified with uh, robbers here. Verse Now verse, I think it's the 38 before, but now we're at verse 38. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right, on the right, and one on the left. And this is in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured himself out to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and intercedes for the transgressors. And so we have here in bullet point fashion uh, the affirmation biblically that everything that happened was according to God's predetermined plan. That Christ was fulfilling scripture in every matter so now we have three people crucified that day. Jesus, a robber on the right, and a robber on the left. 
And notice, continuing in Matthew's account, uh, the fulfilling of prophecy as Jesus is mocked, the Son of God is mocked by the Jewish people, the leadership and the robbers. And those passing by, verse 39, were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God and come down from the cross. I find it interesting, in their abuse, they reveal their guilt because they've heard his words, but they have not believed them, and they have misunderstood them because of their unbelief and hardness of heart. They're hurling abuse at him, and they're wagging their heads. This is a visible show of contempt. And there's this verbal abuse You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. How evil and satanic are these statements? Right along the lines of how Satan tempted Jesus in Matthew 4. Look at the end of verse 40. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. You know, the Bible says that Christ was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. And even on the cross, these wicked statements are still a temptation in his humanity. But he did not yield to temptation because he's God in human flesh. They're taking the very son's words and twisting them and hurling abuse at him. And not only were the common folk mocking and abusing, notice verse 41, in the same way the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, that's the whole group of leaders there, Religious leaders were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we shall believe in him. Notice they understood he was calling on them to believe in him. Do you notice that? He trusts in God, let him deliver him now, if he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Now, these evil religious leaders are even more abusive and more arrogant, and they are uh, in his presence not only speaking. And what's, and what's terrible is he, they're not even speaking to Jesus in my mind. They're mocking to the people. He said, you know, they're not even speaking to his face. They're arrogant. They're mocking him to other people in front of him. And they understood, as I shared, his call for faith in him. Well, if he does this, then we'll believe in him. These are evil men. Evil men. And then notice in verse 43, there's, a, there's even a twist. They, they take Psalm 22 and try to use it against him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now. If he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the son of God. So they're taking the word of God and twisting it against Jesus right there in their insults and mocking. And the reality is, Jesus could have come off the cross to save himself, but he did not. Because he came to do the Father's will. Not my will, but thy will be done. Remember his prayer in the garden, if this cup could pass, but not my will, but thy will be done. God took on human flesh, and he was fully God, but yet fully human, trusting in the Father. And we have a Savior who understands. We have a great high priest who, having been tempted in all things, yet without sin. Jesus understands. And so his, he considered us and the Father's will more important than himself. So we have the king of Israel, the king of kings, unwilling to come down from the cross that he might die for our sins. We have God in human flesh, the Son of God, who does trust the Father, allowing the Father's wrath, as we will see, to be poured out upon him um, for all of us. But notice the abuse doesn't stop. Verse 44, And the robbers also who had been crucified with him were casting the same insult on him. Insult on him. Now we're going to see this, these robbers, both of them are casting it earlier, you know, when it was light. And evidently, one robber comes around and realizes something's going on here. And he's going to, we saw it in the book of Luke. He repents. He recognizes it. And he believes in Jesus. 
So likely the crucifixion began around 9 a.m. and for three hours there was light. But as in a moment, we're going to see there was darkness from noon to three. So evidently while both robbers were hurling insults, one evidently repented. And we see the wonderful true story that we had read for us earlier in the book of Luke. Turn there, the book of Luke. And it's when we read these, we are thankful that there is the opportunity to be saved to the last minute of breath of life. That God's a gracious God. No matter who you are, no matter how close you are to death, if you're willing to humble yourself and see your guilt and believe in Jesus, you will be saved. Luke chapter 23, verse 39. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? Here you go. Now he's getting the reality of it, right? Fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. We're going to die here, right? Don't you fear God? And we indeed justly, he's saying, hey, I'm guilty and I get what I deserve. It always, it always, I always marvel when you see these criminals, you know, that are getting the, 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 their, their ejections for their death and they say they've come to Christ, but yet they're not saying they're guilty for what they've done. This guy says, I deserve this. I deserve this. We deserve it. He says here, and in, we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. That's admitting your sin, isn't it? Uh, But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. That's amazing because they all know they're going to die. That means he knows he's going to have to come again, be raised, right? When you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour. So then we have at this point... um, where three hours have gone by, and uh, we have now uh, this one robber coming to faith. So I believe the point in the book of Matthew here is that Jesus fulfills the word of God, verse 44 again, and the robbers who had also been crucified with him were casting insults at him, and that's exactly what Psalm 22 says. Let's, Let's turn to Psalm 22. Again, Matthew is just relaying one incident after another that that Jesus fulfills the word of God. He fulfills it. And when I read Psalm 22, I marvel at the humanity of our Savior. I marvel at the humanity of our Savior. Fully God, but yet fully man. Psalm 22, verse 6. But I am a worm... And not a man, a reproach of men and despised by people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord and let him deliver you. Let him rescue you because he delights in him. Look down at verse 11. But not far from me, not far from me for trouble is near for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me and as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws and thou dost lay me in the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me. And a band of evildoers have encompassed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Mankind, apart from Christ, hates Christ. They don't want him to be king or lord. And Matthew, in bullet fashion, has revealed the wickedness of man, this overflowing wickedness upon the Son of God. The king of the Jews, the one whom via God's predetermined plan, is allowing himself to be crucified and mocked by his own fallen, wicked creation in fulfillment of the word. All according to the Father's plan. Look at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. 
And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Here we have the sobering and chilling account of the Son of God bearing our sins in his body on the cross. Notice darkness fell on the land until about 3 p.m. Now from the sixth hour, that's noon, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. The term darkness, it, it, it speaks of darkness that came upon the land. The land is the term for Israel. It came upon the land. So Jesus had been put on the cross somewhere around 9 a.m. He had been hanging there for three hours, listening and being surrounded by those hurling abuse at him, suffering. And yet something happens in the middle of this time. Darkness falls upon the land. What's the significance of this? Obviously in Scripture you know that darkness is related to judgment for sin. Remember in Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 23, God sent darkness on the land of Egypt because of Pharaoh's sin and not letting his people go. We see darkness is clearly associated with God's judgment. We see it in Scripture concerning the day of the Lord, the day of his wrath, the day that dar- and darkness is associated. We have that in Isaiah 13. I'm not going to read the whole thing here, but he says... This day, it's a day in which the sun will not, sh- the sun will be dark and the, the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil. We see this in Joel chapter 2 and Amos chapter 8 and Zephaniah chapter 1 that there's darkness when God pours out his wrath. And those who die in their sins will experience black darkness in hell forever. Second Peter and Jude 13. So in our passage, we have a miracle. Uh, Luke says the sun was obscured, or literally it ceased. The light stopped. God the Father caused the sun to cease giving its light for three hours that the sun, while his son Jesus was bearing the sin of the world, separated from him, experiencing judgment for our sins. And it's apparent during this time that Jesus was bearing the sins of the world. He was bearing your sin and my sin. He was separated from God because of our sin. He was receiving the full cup of God's wrath because of our sin. You see, Christ bore our sins. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God bore our sins in his body on the cross. We have God taking our sins, taking on the wrath, the full cup of wrath for us. Scripture is very clear about this, uh, what God did on the cross. Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he, our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And that happened at this time on the cross. John one twenty nine. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Matthew twenty twenty eight. The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 28, 26, 28. For this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt concerning decrees against us which were hostile to us, He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. 
1 Peter 2.22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While reviling, being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed. During this period of darkness, Jesus hung on the cross and all of our sin, their wickedness from eternity, from when we were born to when we die, was placed on him. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God became sin for us. And he was separated from the first time from the Father bearing our sin. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you see why it's such an eternal insult to not admit your sin when Jesus bore it all? That's why you'll go to hell if you're not willing to admit your sin. You've got to call out to Jesus for forgiveness of your sins and he'll forgive you. He'll forgive you. The wages of sin is death. That's what God requires. And if we bear our own sin, we will experience the second death, eternally separated in punishment forever. But Jesus came first to die for us. And on the cross, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And notice Matthew reveals that Jesus fulfills uh, Scripture again in this bearing of our sins, crying out, verse uh, forty. Now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So he's been on the cross for six hours, almost six hours, three hours of darkness bearing God's, the judgment of wrath of God for our sin. And at the end of this time, he cries out in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama salakthani, which is, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In fulfillment of Psalm 22. A holy God has totally forsaken Jesus, the Son of God, as he bears our sins. Separated, bearing the penalty. Now notice what happens at the same time. He says, and some of them standing around there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, and he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come save him. Now this is a difficult portion to to, to uh, interpret. We can get confused, but let's just walk through it briefly as we finish. There were some standing there, and when they heard him cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, they began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. See, they heard the Eli, Eli, right? They think that, my God, my God. So they heard it in Aramaic. And so immediately, one in the group ran up with a sponge, and he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him. Now, the Gospel of John gives us much more information to show us what's really going on here. So turn to John for a minute. John 19. John 19:28. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. This is the part you don't see in Matthew. So he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he says, I'm thirsty. After he had been separated, right? Knowing that things have been accomplished. It's been done, right? I'm thirsty. And and he says here, a jar of sour wine was standing there, and so they put it on a sponge of the sour wine and brought a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. So John is sharing us that Jesus is given sour wine based on his request that he's thirsty after he has accomplished at least the process of bearing our sins on the cross. He had accomplished it. He had already accomplished it, it says. Knowing that he had already, that all things had been accomplished. 
And so what happens back in our passage? They're still mocking. Notice back in uh, Matthew 27. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come save him. And now I don't really like the NASB translation here. I think it's not a very good translation. The, The text literally says in Greek, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah will save him. Don't give him that sip of wine or, 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 or the stuff, the vinegar. Don't do that. Leave him alone. We'll see if Elijah saves him. They're mocking. But what they don't understand is that the sinless Son of God has bore our sin and hit the cross. The work is accomplished. It's already done. And so in verse 50 of our passage, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. In the Gospel of Luke, we have his last words recorded, at least before he rose from the dead. Luke chapter 23, verse 44, And it was now the sixth hour, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sun being obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. We know from the Gospel of John, Jesus would say, it says, therefore, having received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It is finished. Great word. In the Greek, tetelestai, it means completed, finished. It would be stamped on bills, paid in full. Tetelestai. Tetelestai, it is finished. He paid the full price. And he cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now Jesus didn't have his life taken from him. He gave his life. He gave his life. John chapter 10 says, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative, and I have the authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So having the work of salvation finished, Jesus gives up his spirit and dies for us, and we'll see later on, we'll see it next week, that he rises from the dead because the Father accepted his sacrifice. And he's truly the Son of God who died for our sins. You see, there's nothing you can do to pay for your sins. Coming to church doesn't pay for your sins. Doing good things doesn't pay for your sins. You can't do anything. Christ did it all. It is finished. It was finished on the cross. There's nothing you can do to get salvation. It is Christ who did the complete work, and he calls upon you to repent, to recognize your sin, understand it, and turn to God for forgiveness of sins, believing in his Son, Jesus Christ. Christ, that he died for your sins. And guess what? If you're willing to humble yourself and call upon Jesus to save you, he'll save you. And it's based on this event where he died for your sins and then rose from the dead. You see, by this will, and that's Jesus coming to do God's will, we were sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Hebrews chapter 10. For by one offering he has perfected those for all time who are sanctified. It's the one offering of Jesus Christ. And all this brought about the fulfillment. You shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. We don't think about that enough, do we? And we need to. But why would God do this for us? Why would he allow his son to do this? And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. But when the kindness of God and our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you've been saved. Don't reject that, because God's also holy, and he has to judge. But Jesus paid it all, and you can be forgiven today. And for those of us who know him, we should be rejoicing and praising him for forgiving our sins. 
paying the full price. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word and your son. Thank you that your word reveals what he did for us, that he died for our sins, and thank you that he rose from the dead. Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you that they would truly, truly believe in your son Jesus, crying out personally, Lord Jesus, save me. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. And Father, for those of us who've been saved, thank you so much. Help us not to forget how sinful we are and that the price is paid. And that we are now, we have now been redeemed through the blood of your son Jesus. May we not take it lightly. May we not take sin lightly. May we praise you and give you honor and glory for your son forever and ever. Amen.